Hey listeners, it's Molly Brandenburg, co-host of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. Summer is here, and you know what that means. It's blockbuster season. So we're going to explore one of the biggest hits to ever grace the silver screen, Jurassic Park. This Sunday marks the 30th anniversary of its release, and we are sinking our teeth into wild behind-the-scenes stories, shocking facts about dinosaurs, and a conspiracy theory that feels like a plot point come to life. I'm Carter Roy, co-host of Conspiracy Theories. And I'm Richard Rosner, Molly's co-host from Unexplained Mysteries. Catch us this week on Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories. We promise it'll be a roaring good time. In early 1993, a group of professionals poured out of their California office building in the middle of the day. Something strange had come over them. One manager held his arms close to his chest like he couldn't use them. He arched his neck toward the sky and roared. Other employees scattered, but not out of fear. They too had been overrun by this mysterious call to nature. They began leaping over rocks and obstacles, sticking close to the herd for safety. It was like their minds had been taken over, like these ordinary office workers had been mentally transformed into dinosaurs. Kind of sounds like a scene from a sci-fi horror movie, right? Only this was real life. The dino-brained employees belong to the digital effects team responsible for designing the CGI creatures in Jurassic Park. Their employer was adamant about making the animals as lifelike as possible. This meant they had to learn, think, and move like the extinct creatures. And then they translated those motions onto their computers. Well, I'm not going to lie. Playing dinosaur in a parking lot sounds like a great way to make a living. But this VFX team was under a lot of pressure. No one had ever made a CGI spectacle quite like Jurassic Park before. Some critics were probably waiting for them to fail. If the film flopped, it might set back their industry for decades, maybe even forever. But if it succeeded, well... They'd make Hollywood history. Welcome to Jurassic Week, our three-part special presented by Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. This week, we're teaming up to celebrate one of the most beloved movie franchises of all time, Jurassic Park. For the 30th anniversary of its debut, we're looking back into history, like all the way back to 150 million years ago. Along the way, we'll explore questions like, what do velociraptors and poodles have in common? Didn't see that one coming, did you? How did Michael Crichton come up with his dinosaurian plot? And can we really bring extinct animals back to life? Today, we'll take a behind-the-scenes look at the movie that started it all. We'll examine how Steven Spielberg beat the odds and smashed box office records, and debate why the film resonated so much for audiences. 
and still does today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Millions of years ago, a tree stood tall in an ancient forest. There, a sticky sap called resin oozed through its bark, trapping small animals and insects before it hardened into amber. One of those amber fragments managed to survive. Past the rise and fall of many species. Beyond the dawn of man. All the way through the industrial era and into the present day. Well, sort of. The 1980s, to be exact. That's when it landed in the hands of two researchers. They determined the amber, which had preserved a small bug, was at least 40 million years old. But they weren't sure how much of its cellular data remained intact. To find out, they sliced the amber into very thin pieces, they put the specimens onto a slide and adjusted the focus on their microscope. Turned out, they could make out a lot of detail, even the structures within the cell, including a nucleus. A little recap for those of us who are rusty on biology. The nucleus is where our genetic information is stored. 
If this bug had an intact cellular nucleus, that could mean it still had its DNA. And if so, researchers could examine the genes of long-extinct species. The scenario we just described might sound like a scene from the Jurassic Park movies themselves, but it really happened. In 1982, George Poinar Jr. and Roberta Hess published their paper on the millennia-old insect and its nucleus. As future husband and wife, they were the perfect pair to uncover the potential genetic material. Poinar was an entomologist, while Hess was an electron microscopist. In simple terms, he specialized in insects, often ones from the past, and she studied teeny tiny structures. But unlike the movie, they didn't find dino DNA in a mosquito's stomach. In their case, it was a fly. And the 40-million-year-old specimen wasn't from the Jurassic era, which ended roughly 145 million years ago. Still, the finding was huge. It proved it was possible for extremely old genes to survive into the modern day. Poinar and Hess's research hit the public at the perfect time to generate buzz. In the early 1980s, everyone was talking about extinct creatures. Or at least, it seemed that way to novelist Michael Crichton. He'd see store shelves filled with dino-themed toys, clothes, and bedding. They appeared in movies and on TV. When he took his 18-month-old daughter to the zoo, she asked about all the animals she was excited to see. Hippos, zebras, and of course, dinosaurs. It seemed the world was primed for a new dino story to hit the shelves, but Crichton was hesitant to jump on this just because it was trendy. That is, until he discovered Poinar and Hess's publication. It sparked an idea, a narrative where scientists used ancient DNA to bring dinosaurs back to life. The plot was too good for Crichton to ignore. Initially, Crichton told the story from the point of view of a young boy in the park. Which made sense. Dinomania seemed especially captivating for kids. Who better to showcase the wonder and awe through? But children weren't the only people who'd be amazed by a Jurassic Park. Realizing this, Crichton became dissatisfied with his early draft and revised the story, shifting the perspective to several adults, including a paleontologist named Dr. Alan Grant. Now that's the Jurassic Park we all know and love. Major revisions weren't the only factor slowing Crichton down. He was also busy with his other job, working on a script that would eventually become the first episode of the hit TV show, ER. During a meeting with his co-writer, one Steven Spielberg, Crichton mentioned he was working on a dinosaur book, and that's when he saw Spielberg's eyes light up. Turns out, Spielberg had been obsessed with dinosaurs since childhood. He still remembered buying a toy dino after a trip to a museum, kicking off a lifelong fascination. So Crichton shared an early draft of his manuscript, and Spielberg raved about it. Right then, Crichton promised he'd let him direct the movie version if Spielberg could guarantee it got made. 
Sounds like a good deal. Spielberg was already a Hollywood legend. His movies had won numerous Oscars. He had hits like Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and E.T. under his belt. Plus, he knew how to pull off some incredible effects, thanks to the Indiana Jones trilogy. But at this point, he'd just come off a box office flop. It was titled Always, a, in my opinion, cliched supernatural love story. An epic dinosaur saga was just what he needed to get back on track. Plus, a lot of other movie makers perked up when they heard about Crichton's novel. After all, Crichton had a great track record of writing stories that became hit films, like The Andromeda Strain and Westworld. He was already a mover and shaker in the industry and generated the kind of buzz most writers only dreamed of. 20th Century Fox, Columbia TriStar, and Warner Brothers all wanted a shot at making a Jurassic movie. But ultimately, Universal Pictures landed the property, a victory that was announced in May 1990. Six months later, the general public got their first taste of the Jurassic Park universe as Crichton's book hit the shelves. It was as popular as the studios hoped it would be. It stayed on bestseller charts for 12 weeks and confirmed audiences were hungry for dino stories. Universal knew they had a blockbuster on their hands, and Crichton and Spielberg were a dream team. The Jurassic Park movie had the potential to smash box offices. But they still needed to accomplish one tricky thing, bringing those dinosaurs to life. Coming up, the making of Jurassic Park. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Steven Spielberg was about to direct the biggest book adaptation of the early 1990s. He had one major goal. He wanted to change the way people thought about dinos. He didn't want them to come across as giant Godzilla-like reptiles. His dinosaurs would be different from anything audiences had seen before. The biggest question was, how would he make realistic dinosaurs appear on screen? If audiences didn't believe they were watching real animals, they might not respond to Jurassic Park. Fortunately, there were some trailblazers. Visual effects were evolving swiftly thanks to movies like James Cameron's 1989 release, The Abyss. That film utilized a new tech called computer-generated imagery, or CGI, and much of it was done by VFX artist Steve Williams. According to a profile on the Den of Geek website, Williams had started working for Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's VFX company, the year before. So let's just say he was a pioneer. In the 80s and 90s, CGI was still in its infancy, 
but it was advancing in leaps and bounds. Which wasn't necessarily a good thing. A movie that was cutting edge in 1989 was looking outdated by the early 90s. For this reason, many professionals had reservations about using digital effects in their films. Meaning they avoided working with Williams and hired other VFX artists who used more traditional techniques, things like building miniatures and painting backgrounds. In other words, if you hired them to show mighty King Kong climbing a building, they might build a tiny but spectacular ape puppet and a fascinating little toy city. Or if you wanted a submarine to dive into the ocean, they might have a small mechanical sub plunge into a tank of water. It was a trick of the camera. If you zoom in enough, the audience doesn't have a sense of scale. They can't tell if your miniature Empire State Building is only a few feet tall. And it could all be done without the help of computers. But if you wanted to hire Industrial Light and Magic to make a digital creature, he had to talk to Williams and his colleagues. He worked in a department of five. They had limited funds and resources, but that all changed during Williams' second year with the company. Like we mentioned before, The Abyss was a huge hit, and it featured computer-generated images of strange creatures, which Williams helped create. In fact, director James Cameron was so impressed with his work, he brought Williams onto his next movie, which you may have heard of, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. It's safe to say Williams was doing all right for himself. But he also had a rebellious streak, which got him into trouble. See, Spielberg didn't want computer-made dinos in his film. His concerns were the same as everyone else. Digital technology was too new, too untested. And his pal Crichton was trusting his best-selling novel in his hands. It was too risky. Not to mention, he wanted to make a movie that would stand the test of time, which meant he only felt comfortable relying on traditional effects. With one little twist, Spielberg wanted to create life-size dinosaur models, and the construction alone would have been astronomical. But there was a producer on the movie who was determined to overrule Spielberg's anti-CGI stance. Her name was Kathleen Kennedy. As co-founder of their production company, Amblin Entertainment, Kennedy had produced famous hits, including E.T. and the Indiana Jones movies. If anyone had the authority to overrule Spielberg, it was her. At some point in the early 1990s, Kennedy was touring the facilities where Williams worked. She walked past a computer where he usually worked and saw something on one of his screens. It was a fully animated T-Rex clip. A realistic, believable CGI dinosaur skeleton walking around like it had jumped straight out of a time machine. Now, this was no coincidence. Williams knew Kennedy was going to pass by his workstation that day, and he wanted her to know he was up to the Jurassic Challenge. It worked. Kennedy was spellbound. She eventually somehow convinced Spielberg to incorporate CGI into the movie. It would be expensive, 
and might require the company to hire more people into William's department, but she thought it was worth it. The rest was history. Williams and his team were hired for Jurassic Park, but his digital dinos weren't the only ones on screen. Spielberg ended up using many different techniques to build his creatures. Some were CGI, others were miniatures, and he still slid a few full-size robotic animals in there. For example, remember that scene where Alan Grant and the kids walk over the hill to see a herd of bipedal herbivores running? Yes, I do. That was unforgettable. And then the little boy, Tim, identifies them as gul, uh, gulliminimus? That was all CGI. So is the climax. Just before the movie wraps up, three velociraptors are stalking the cast through the park's visitor center. They chase them through the kitchen, then the dining room and control room. Eventually, everyone ends up in this big foyer with an assembled T-Rex skeleton. You know, the ones they have to climb down because the raptors are on the stairs. Originally, that scene ended with the skeleton collapsing. The raptors are crushed under heavy falling bones and the humans escape. But at the last second, Spielberg decided the T-Rex needed to make one more appearance before the movie wrapped up. He didn't have a puppet or animatronic that was appropriate for the scene, but he could still realize his vision through the power of VFX. Which is how we got that iconic ending. The skeletons collapse, but everyone runs away unscathed. The still alive velociraptors surround the people. They're about to eat our beloved protagonists. And the Tyrannosaurus appears out of nowhere, killing the raptors and saving the day. Pretty exciting move, one that would be unthinkable without the help of CGI. As for non-digital effects, remember the scene where the T-Rex breaks out of its paddock and investigates the two stalled cars outside? Well, that's a real dinosaur. Well, I mean, at least a real animatronic one. Well, that scene posed its own challenges, because it's set during a storm. Rain machines douse the robotic dinosaur throughout the chute. After a few takes, the waterlogged mechanics stopped working properly, and the T-Rex began shivering and jiggling. So, seriously, the crew would have to call cut, towel off the T-Rex, and resume work. Everything would be good until the dinos started twitching again. And the fake rain wasn't the only problem on set. Several sequences were shot in Hawaii. The story takes place on a fictional tropical island, so the vacationer's paradise made for a great stand-in. By September 11, 1992, the cast and crew were preparing to fly home to the mainland. They'd filmed everything they could on the island and needed to get a few more shots on Hollywood sound stages. But nature had other plans. The storm of the century, Hurricane Iniki, buffeted Kauai where the filmmakers were staying. Spielberg and his colleagues couldn't even leave the hotel. The roads were too dangerous as 165 mile per hour winds whipped across beaches and highways. 
Luckily, the hotel's walls and ceiling held. As far as we know, nobody was hurt. Still, the hurricane left a trail of devastation in its wake. Power lines and buildings were knocked over. The roads were out of commission. Spielberg may have wondered if he'd ever finish this movie, or if his film was as doomed as the dinosaurs. Well, luckily, he and his team eventually got off the island with their precious raw film intact. They shot more footage on L.A. area sound stages, and before long, it was back to business as usual. After filming wrapped, Spielberg handed his footage over to the visual effects teams so they could fill in the gaps with those CGI dinosaurs, as we mentioned. And since Spielberg wanted his dinos to be unlike anything else out there, he encouraged his teams to explore new ways to depict the animals. We open this episode by explaining how the VFX team pretended to be dinos to explore different ways their creation should move. According to the official Making of Jurassic Park documentary, they also took mime classes and studied clips of ostriches, giraffes, and rhinos in motion. They hoped to redefine the ways people thought about animal motion. They didn't want to replicate the dino movements they'd seen in other movies, where the creatures were depicted as slow and trudging. They wanted to create something new, something exciting. Even the sound mixers had to reinvent the way they did their work. Spielberg wasn't interested in the traditional roars and growls audiences were used to. Instead of using existing stock audio, he sent sound engineers to capture live animals. Then, they used those sounds to create dinosaur calls and chirps. And the Gala Gallimimus scene we mentioned earlier ends with the T-Rex hunting and killing a member of the herd. What you're actually hearing is a dog chomping on a toy. And when you hear the Velociraptor's shrieks, it's really a dolphin squealing or a walrus growling. All this work The sound, the visual effects, and the editing took another six months after the last scene was shot. But the planning and effort paid off. Jurassic Park hit the theaters on June 11, 1993. In its first weekend, the film made $50 million, which may not sound all that impressive by today's standards, but factor in inflation and other factors, and it was a massive take. In 1993, the feature was hailed as the highest-grossing movie of all time. And it didn't just debut strong. It kept drawing audiences to the theater for over a year. During that time, it grossed $357 million. Clearly, Jurassic Park captured lightning in a bottle. But it left people wondering, what made it so darn special? Coming up, a Jurassic legacy. Now back to the story. Jurassic Park certainly wasn't the first dinosaur film, nor was it the first to break ground with new technology. But still, something about it resonated. 
Variety's Rebecca Rubin argued it was because Jurassic Park was more than a disaster movie or an effects fest. It had a meaningful story at its center. When you think about the plot, you may focus on the rampaging dinos, the adrenaline-fueled chase scenes, and the various characters who get chomped. But there's a lot more to the narrative than that. Early on, we learn Sam Neill's character, Dr. Alan Grant, is in a serious romantic relationship with Laura Dern's Dr. Ellie Sattler. Sattler wants to have children, but Grant isn't on board with the idea. Over the course of the movie, Grant has to protect and bond with two kids trapped inside the park, Lex and Tim Murphy. By the end, Grant is totally enamored with them. They all escape, and in one wordless look he exchanges with Dr. Sattler, he seems to say he's ready to start a family. Grant and Sattler aren't the only characters exploring parenthood in the film. In one pivotal scene, the audience learns that dinosaurs are reproducing, even though that should be impossible. Well, to quote the movie, life finds a way. But the Smithsonian science correspondent Riley Black has a different interpretation on the film's prosperity. She says it's all about the dinos. As of 1993, no movie had successfully depicted them on screen. Jurassic Park CGI creations looked like real, living, breathing creatures. Even though viewers knew it was just a movie, for two hours, they could pretend the park was real. And ultimately, that's what we want, to meet a dino for ourselves. This may sound like a weird statement. Why would anyone want to live in a world with rampaging ancient predators? But Jurassic Park's creatures are much more than bloodthirsty beasts. Sure, we all love the scenes of velociraptors stalking Lex and Tim through the park's kitchens, but the most iconic sequences weren't necessarily violent or tense. They were the breathtaking shots of the characters climbing from a jeep to see a herd of long-necked Brachiosaurus marching across a plain. Or later on, when Dr. Sattler treats a sick three-horned Triceratops. How about when Dr. Grant grabs a giant branch to hand-feed a Brachiosaur? Or possibly the most famous sequence in the entire franchise, the climax, where the T-Rex roars at the camera as a banner flutters to the ground. We don't just love dinosaurs, we're awed by them. We want to marvel at them, not run away in fear. It's hard to say why dinosaurs have such a hold on us. It might be the allure of an ancient extinct species and the bygone era they represent, or the fact that they're huge. Or that they remind us of legendary magical creatures like dragons. None of those explanations fully cover it, though. Clearly, there's something else about dinosaurs that makes them appealing, enthralling, breathtaking. We may never know what that something is, but we'll spend the next two episodes trying to define it. For now, all we can say for sure is dinosaurs are simply cool. And Jurassic Park gets that. Sure, there are plenty of horror-tinged scenes that bring you to the edge of your seat, but there are also sequences that ask you to sit back and just let the awe wash over you. 
No wonder it was a hit. I will say, though, the film's success was a double-edged sword. It changed our understanding of what a movie could be, and as a result, it transformed the film industry. Not necessarily for the better. In total, there were only about six minutes or so of CGI dino footage in the movie, but those were an iconic six minutes. And when the film made money, it seemed to prove audiences craved digital creations. Earlier, we described how many studios were hesitant to get on the CGI train, but Jurassic Park changed that. Afterwards, all the movie studios wanted digital effects. These days, you can see Vin Diesel defy the laws of physics in the new Fast and Furious installments. Or you can watch The Little Mermaid come to life in live action. They'd both be a lot harder to make without digital effects. CGI technology has made new movie tricks possible. Dead actors can give posthumous performances, like when old footage of Carrie Fisher was reworked into Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker three years after she passed away. This is a game changer, at least according to Steve Williams, the digital effects artist who helped convince Steven Spielberg to embrace CGI. In his Den of Geek interview, he shared fun behind-the-scenes stories, but also issued dark warnings. Now, CGI is a cornerstone of today's Hollywood. But as digital effects became more popular after 1993, they opened the door to exploitation. Nowadays, employees at digital firms rack up billable hours on long nights and weekends. Understaffing is common, Managers pile more and more tasks onto employees who are already stretched thin. They experience burnout, medical problems, and anxiety attacks. One could almost draw a direct line from Jurassic Park's success to the proliferation of VFX in big-budget movies to the problems plaguing designers today. Ironically, a fictional movie where monstrous dinosaurs were brought to life created a real-life monster for the industry. When Spielberg made Jurassic Park, he likely wasn't thinking about how his film might change the digital effects industry. He just wanted a movie that looked great. And he got one. But no matter how cool the digital dinos seem on screen, they're not real. In fact, Paleontologists and dino enthusiasts alike would say the movies are far from perfect. We all have friends who complain about new releases because they're unrealistic. But Jurassic Park took cinematic inaccuracy to a whole new level. If you were face-to-face with the Velociraptor, would you know what to do? If you get most of your information from the silver screen, the answer is... Probably not. It's good Jurassic Park isn't a true story, or we'd all be in a lot of danger. We'll talk about why next time. Thanks again for tuning in. We will be back on Wednesday to explore what Jurassic Park got wrong about dinosaurs and to see how we might do in a real ancient animal amusement park. 
You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories on Mondays and Wednesdays, Unexplained Mysteries on Tuesdays, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries are Spotify originals from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker and Ryan O'Leary-Jones are our supervising editors, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, recorded by Juan Borda, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Brian Golub. Our hosts are Carter Roy, Molly Brandenburg, and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>